Welcome to The Brain Architects, a podcast from the Center on the Developing Child at Harvard University. I'm Cameron Seymour Hawkins, the Center's Communications Coordinator. Our Center believes that advances in the science of child development provide a powerful source of new ideas that can improve outcomes for children and their caregivers. By sharing the latest science from the field, we hope to help you make that science actionable and apply it in your work in ways that can increase your impact. In December, we continued our Place Matters webinar series with our second installment, Understanding Racism's Impact on Child Development, Working Towards Fairness of Place in the United States. During the webinar, Drs. Stephanie Curentin, Nathaniel Hartnett, Mavis Sanders, and Natalie Slopin discuss their latest research exploring how racism gets under the skin to impact children's development and how it contributes to unequal access to opportunity in the places where children live, grow, play, and learn. Together, they explored ways to dismantle systemic barriers and work towards solutions that promote healthy child development. We're excited to share this conversation on today's episode of the Brain Architects podcast. Now, without further ado, here's Tassie Warren, the Center's Deputy Director and Chief Strategy Officer, who will set the stage for our conversation. Hello. Welcome to today's webinar, Understanding Racism's Impact on Child Development, Working Towards Fairness of Place in the United States. We're so excited to bring you into this conversation. Whether you're joining us for the first time or are regular to the Center on the Developing Child, thank you for being here today. This webinar is part of our Place Matters webinar series. The series is designed to expand upon our Center's recent work on how influences from our environments, particularly the built and natural environments, play a role in shaping early childhood development, beginning before birth. Throughout this series, we're highlighting scientific and community expertise and offering strategies to work towards fairness of place and to create the conditions that will allow all children to thrive. Today's conversation will explore the intersection between policy, systemic inequalities, racial disparities, and children's healthy development. We hope that you'll gain insights that are helpful to you in the work you do in support of children and families. Um, and thank you to everyone who submitted questions when registering for this event. We received hundreds of submitted questions. So we'll be asking some of those questions um, in the second half of the conversation. Um, of course, we will not have time to address all the questions that were submitted or we would be here for days, but we were really intrigued um, going through all of the questions that were submitted and we appreciate the thought provoking ideas that you all brought to mind for us. So we'll be thinking about how those questions can inform future conversations. So I am really excited uh, in just a second to hand it over to Dr. Stephanie Currington, who we are incredibly lucky to have leading this conversation for us today. Dr. Currington is a professor in the Education Leadership and Policy Studies Department at Boston University, Wheelock College of Education and Human Development and is the director of the Center on the Ecology of Early Development, or SEED. SEED's research and initiatives serve to inform policies that promote equity and justice for racially and ethnically minoritized children in the contexts of education, health, and community. 
She is joined today by an outstanding panel of researchers, Dr. Nathaniel Hartnett, Dr. Mavis Sanders, and Dr. Natalie Slopin. Dr. Hartnett is Director of the Neurobiology of Effective and Traumatic Experiences Laboratory at McLean Hospital and an Assistant Professor in Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Hartnett's research is focused on understanding the neurobiological mechanisms that mediate susceptibility to trauma and stress-related disorders. Dr. Sanders is a Senior Research Scholar of Black Children and Families at Child Trends where she leads an applied research agenda that advances racial equity and social justice. Before joining Child Trends in 2021, Dr. Sanders served as a professor of education and affiliate professor in the doctoral program in language, literacy, and culture at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Dr. Slopin is an assistant professor of social and behavioral sciences at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Slopin is a social epidemiologist, and her research focuses on social and contextual factors that shape childhood development and inequities in health. Now, I'll let Dr. Currenton share more about herself and kick off our conversation. Hello, everyone. I am honored to be here to moderate this conversation and to represent um, SEED as well as Boston University. As Tassie was saying, our work at SEED specifically focuses on understanding how racism impacts Black children's growth and development and the ways in which families use their cultural assets and social capital to protect themselves from the harm of racism. And we know that this conversation we're having today is critically important um, because racism operates on multiple levels and it impacts young children throughout all levels of their biology, their social development, and other ecological systems. And in the prenatal phase and the first years of life, um, they are the most sensitive developmental period. So it's really critical to understand how racism exerts its impact on the health and growth of prenatal children and infants and toddlers. As a scholar um, myself, I've been investigating and doing work on the topic of racism in young children's um, learning for decades. By the fall of 2024, SEED, along with our partners at Equity Research Action Coalition, will be publishing a special issue for Early Childhood Research Quarterly on this topic, featuring researchers from a variety of disciplines and highlighting the work of several junior scholars. So the scientific evidence is clear and it's growing that racism imposes unique and substantial stressors on the daily lives of families and caregivers. And understanding how these stressors affect child health and development provides a compelling framework for understanding and protecting young children. Such frameworks are the RISE 3 model, um, for which I'm a co-author with, um, with Dr. Yoma Aruka. It presents new ideas about how communities, policies, programs, and funding streams might confront and dismantle inequalities and build a stronger future for all of us. But we're here today because there's so much opportunity ahead of us at the community level, at the policy um, level, and in all the work that brings each of us to this conversation today. As the Center on the Developing Child wrote in their Place Matters paper that was published earlier this year, it says, just as dimensions of the built and natural environment have been designed over time, they can be redesigned to support healthy development. 
So throughout our discussion today, we will share ways to redesign, rethink, and advance forward in pursuit of creating environments that are anti-racist and can support all children's healthy development. And with that, I'm so excited to be moderating this conversation with Nate and Natalie and Mavis. And I'm going to start the conversation with Nate. So Nate, can you share um, what you've observed in your recent research in early childhood emotional health? Specifically, how have you observed the effects of racism on children's brain development and how and how were you able to expose a direct relationship to structural racism in your findings? Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Current, and thank you very much for having me. Um, just to set the stage for answering that question, you know, my lab is really interested in understanding how we identify and prevent the development of things like trauma and stress-related disorders. And we know that the stress that people experience during childhood really plays a role in the development of those disorders. And we know that there are these really strong racial disparities between the amount of stress that people are exposed to where Black and other racially and ethnically marginalized individuals are exposed to a disproportionate amount of stress. And so what we've been trying to do is to understand how the places in which children are growing up is related to the developments in um, brain structure and function and how that might play a role in later development of PTSD. And so one of the more recent things that we've done is we've looked at data from this large scale longitudinal study of child development called the Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development Study. This is a study of about 10 to 12,000 kids that started when they're about nine to 10 years old. And we were looking at the volume of gray matter of different brain regions that we know are really important for emotion, learning, and memory. These includes things like the prefrontal cortex, really important for attention and top-down regulation of people's emotional responses. And then regions like the amygdala and hippocampus, which are really important for expressing that emotional response, that fear response to something stressful. And what we found was that if you look at the brain volume of white children compared to black children, you see that black children show this, these decrements in gray matter volume of these different brain regions. But what's really important is if you look at the environments that they're growing up in, if you look at the amount of income that black children have uh, or their parents have, if you look at this thing called the area deprivation index, this way of looking at the amount of resources available in these different environments, if you look at the amount of conflict that's happening in the homes, there are really strong racial disparities in all these different areas where black children are really living in these areas that have much more um, deprivation. There's much more conflict in the homes. And there's much lower income across those. And all of those things are related to gray matter volume in this study. And so once we go through um, to address your question of how do we actually expose this direct link, once we go through, we try to normalize these mathematically. Once we try to account for all those, you really don't see strong race-related differences in gray matter volume anymore. And this is really important because we also look to see how are the volumes of these regions tied to PTSD symptoms, even at nine and 10 years old. And so you wouldn't expect large um, symptoms of PTSD. You wouldn't expect many people to reach the, the level of the disorder. And you don't see that, but you really still see, even at nine and 10, differences in the severity of PTSD symptoms, differences in the levels of trauma exposure at nine, 10 years old between white and black individuals. And once you sort of normalize, once you sort of 
equalize the environment, the places that they're growing up in, you really see these sort of normalizations of brain volume too. And so we're really thinking about, you know, how do we address this question that the webinar is about, the sort of aspect of place and how that's related to where kids are growing up so that we can help to alleviate some of these uh, uh, brain differences that we see that are going to have a role in how these individuals develop into the future. So this is just absolutely fascinating. I was taking copious notes here and I can't wait until we get to the question and answer um, session to talk more. But at this point though, I wanna give Natalie a chance to talk about some of her recent work that is centered on racial disparities in the physical and mental health of young children. So Natalie, can you tell us about your research and how you're finding links to inequitable experiences and opportunities, particularly as it relates to inequalities in the places where caregivers are raising their young children? Yes, thank you so much for having me here and for the opportunity to share the work that I've been doing um, along with my students. So um, my research is focused on understanding how inequitable experiences of opportunity for healthy development that are shaped by our systems and structures affect healthy development and contribute to inequities that we see across uh, socioeconomic position as well as across racial and ethnic groups with um, marginalized um, racial and ethnic um, children from marginalized groups uh, often displaying worse outcomes um, early in the life course. And we know that these differences emerge over time. So, you know, health is rooted in childhood. And so it's really important to understand the systems and structures that are in place um, very early on affecting children and their families so that we can identify where and how we can intervene. And so I um, have been working on uh, research across a variety of topics, um, thinking about what are different systems and structures that children interact with that are relevant to the health um, in the earliest years of life. And one of the areas very relevant to today's topic is housing. And one of the areas that I'm interested in is also in neighborhoods. And so I thought I could give an example of a, a study that I um, published this past year related to neighborhoods that connects to um, the topic for today. So this was a study uh, that we published in pediatrics and we drew on a large national data source called the Mortality Disparities in American Communities. And what we did is we connected um, information about over a million children in the United States coming from the American Community Surveys, linking it to information about the neighborhoods that they were living in. So here we were using a neighborhood measure called the Child Opportunity Index. And then we followed, uh, the children were followed with death record data for 11 years. Um, and so what our study found was that residing in neighborhoods with lower opportunity based on this measure of the Child Opportunity Index was associated with increased risk for mortality for children as well as for their parents. Um, and so we felt as though it was important to document the intergenerational consequences of um, neighborhood settings and the importance of implementing place-based policies to reduce um, the inequities that children experience that will have consequences as time goes on. And so that particular study that I'm talking about was focused on outcome of mortality, but there's a, a huge literature documenting the, the role that inequitable neighborhood environments have across uh, many dimensions of social, emotional, behavioral development in children, and then health outcomes that we see as individuals age over, over the life course. 
So that's an interesting area of work. And one of the topics that I'm very interested in is how we best measure neighborhood context for health. So there's a lot of leading, you know, a lot of popular measures of neighborhood environments. And I think there's a lot of open questions about which is going to be most useful for us and in which context. So some measures may be best when we're thinking about how to decide where to implement certain programs or policies, whereas other may be useful, you know, for, for research purposes. Um, and so I think there's a lot of open questions uh, that we can answer using science um, about the best ways to conceptualize what the characteristics of neighborhoods matter most for children. And then finally, another topic that I'm, I'm interested in has to do with heterogeneity or variation in the way children respond to um, their environments, thinking that that can help us to understand uh, how to develop interventions that can close uh, gaps in, in outcomes to lead to um, more equitable health and development for all children. Well, again, just some really compelling um, research and um, I, just really, really, really interesting and compelling, somewhat um, a little sad too. So I will turn it over to Mavis. And Mavis, you and your team of researchers recently developed an interactive tool that allows users to, um, such as users such as policymakers, practitioners, or researchers, to browse a decade of literature on the effects of protective community resources, and with the aim to explore how these resources can mitigate the impacts of risks faced by children and youth, including racism as one of those risks. So, during your review of this extensive body of work, can you share more about some of your key discoveries? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you for the invitation to this conversation. Just to provide a, a bit of context, my co-authors and I, including Jennifer Winston, Shana Rochester, and Dominique Martinez, I definitely wanted to give a shout out. We have been engaged in a process since I arrived at Child Trends to develop a research agenda which we um, sort of collectively throughout the organization decided would acknowledge the diversity in, in the Black community, be strengths-based, be um, systems-focused, and solutions-based as well. And we went through a three-step process, and I believe that um, there'll be a brief in the chat box. Um, to identify, we went through this three-step process to identify the research priorities. So you can imagine it was, it was a large um, option, a large number of options that we could have pursued. And so what we decided um, through this three-step process is to focus on Black family cultural assets um, and community protective resources. Uh, my colleague, Krishana uh, Lloyd, will be focused on Black family cultural assets, and I am focused on protective community resources. As part of that process, we um, engaged in a systematic review um, of protective community resources and how they relate to child and youth development. We had 3,000 studies initially. We were able to reduce those to about 300 and so odd studies that went for full review, and then it was reduced further to 172 studies. So the bibliographic tool that you reference includes information for those 172 studies. 
that um, users can filter based on either the race of the participants or the age of the participants or the, the type of protective community resource people are interested in. And so for this discussion, because we're talking a lot about um, mental well-being, um, uh, cognitive development and so forth, when we look at those outcomes, and it's also filterable by outcomes, things like community cohesion and support rise to the top as being um, consistently significant across this very diverse body of literature. So I want to put that out there. It's really hard to come to um, draw any absolutes, but there is a preponderance of evidence that suggests that community role models and mentors, positive peer support, school connectedness, and engagement in community-based activities, as well as neighborhood amenities, all contribute to um, the positive mental health of young people and that they can mitigate some of the risks. And I think that's what Natalie was talking about. That's in communities. And what that suggests to me is that relationships matter, but also the spaces for people together and build those kinds of relationships that are so important um, to young people's development. So I'd be happy to talk about that further as this conversation unfolds. Yes, I'm going to ask you another um, question, Mavis, about your work. Your team released a brief in November that was called Black Children and Youth Can Benefit from Focused Research on Protective Community Resources. Mm -hmm. And in that brief, you stated several neighborhood amenities and services that were associated with that health and safety. Can you name some more of those specifically? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we, and then Natalie talked about this as well, the constraints um, that we have as researchers by the measures that we have, right? Um, but we are improving in those areas. Uh, neighborhood amenities specifically, um, which is one of the areas that we found to have a significant and positive relationship and association with black children's flourishing and, and development. Um, one of those, you can think of those amenities as parks, recreation centers, libraries, sidewalks. So people who are familiar with the National Survey of Children's Health are familiar with that sort of neighborhood amenities measure that includes those. Um, there are also some studies that are really interested around walkability of a city. So how is the sort of city laid out? to promote walking as a mode of transportation. So you look at, you know, public transportation as how buildings are laid out, the lighting that is available, all of those things. And so we also published one brief where we looked at flourishing and flourishing was just looking at um, individuals' ability to stick to a particular topic or a particular task until the end um, their ability to control their emotions and those kinds of things. And we found that young people who had access to all four of those neighborhood amenities, sidewalks, um, green spaces and parks, libraries um, and rec centers were more likely to flourish or to have those sort of mental health um, indicators of flourishing than children who did not have access 
to those four amenities. We also found uh, another study suggested that uh, young men who were in cities with walkability, so young Black male adolescents were less likely to report being involved in physical violence of any sort when they lived in cities that or neighborhoods with higher walkability skills. So those are just two of the sort of space-based or you know built environment elements that we've seen make a difference in, in the outcomes that we're interested in for Black children and youth. Yeah, again, this is just so, the research that all of you are talking about is just really, really emphasizing the importance of place um, and the importance of relationships within the context of spaces and places. So it's just fascinating to me. I'm gonna circle back to Natalie now and um, ask you, Natalie, about the Child Opportunity Index and how you use that in your work. So um, specifically, can you share with, us more about this tool and how that tool in particular might help us better understand health disparities in places where children live and grow. Sure. Um, so the Child Opportunity Index is a measurement tool that was de developed by Dolores Acevedo Garcia and her colleagues, uh, notably Clemens and LLP, who is a, is a major contributor as well. They're based at Brandeis University. And they developed this measure as a way to um, think about the opportunities that are available to children in various communities across the United States. So it's an example of a place-based measure that's aiming to evaluate or quantify resources and opportunities specifically as um, related to children's well-being and future prospects. So there are other place-based composite measures of advantages or disadvantage that exist. So Nate had mentioned the area deprivation index as an example. There's the social vulnerability index. There's um, really a host. There's an environmental justice index. But this is the only one that I'm aware of that I've seen in the literature that's really tailored and designed to think about those aspects of an environment that matter for child development specifically. So it's thinking about quality of education and healthcare, um, neighborhood characteristics of the built environment, such as those that Mavis had just mentioned, like walkability and safety um, and other essential elements of neighborhoods and communities. And so this measure uh, is used by many different types of um, individuals and organizations. Um, it, it's very well designed to highlight disparities in access to opportunities across different demographic groups um, and across geographic areas. Um, so this can help people to think about, you know, which um, contexts really require certain types of investments or interventions um, and where we may see the greatest impacts of investments for improving outcomes among perhaps underserved communities. And so the, the data uh, is, you know, we have this data nationally across the United States and um, it, it's been being used by researchers as well as um, a lot of different public health departments um, at this time. Great, great. So happy to learn too that that was built here in Massachusetts. That's very great. I'm going to switch to um, talking about the implications for you all's work, and I'm going to open it up um, to each of you. So um, I know that it's hard for researchers to come up with policy recommendations or community strategies specifically because we are scientists and researchers by training. But 
Can you um, think about your research and how it informs strategies to support child development at either that community level or that larger systems level? And I'm going to circle back to Nate and let him start. Ah, uh, you chose the one that it's hard to answer. So I think that, you know, for us in the brain imaging field, it's sometimes hard to think about, you know, how does showing picture pictures of the brain to people really help with this type of thing and how do we address policy? But I think that one of the benefits of the work that we do is that we really can show these effects very strongly. It's one thing when you ask people, you know, do you think that discrimination has an impact on well-being? And you can get in this argument of, oh, is it perceived? Is it this thing? But when you can actually look at the brain, when you can actually look at what happens when you keep people in these impoverished environments, I think that's really powerful. Um, we've done a bit in terms of reaching out both to talking with you know, um, individuals at the Center for Law, Brain Behavior with Francis Shen and thinking about how do we actually talk to people in positions of power, people who are making laws, people who are making policy and actually showing them the data to just say, look, this is a real thing. We can really see it in the people that we're looking at. It's not something you, you can really get away from. Um, you know, and I think that there are other things that we've thought about in terms of, you know, what are the actual policies that we can do? Um, but I think, you know, one thing that I've said in the past is like, well, we know that even though there's heterogeneity in the results, even things like cash transfers are associated with changes in the brain. They're very reliably in some ways associated with changes in mental health and behavior. Um, and I think that part of the reason you see these heterogeneities in some of the findings is for the exact reason that we're talking about here, right? And that the place that people are growing up in, the actual structures themselves also need to change to help to facilitate this bettering of child development and ultimately sort of healthy adult functioning in the future. Does any, um, what about Natalie or Mavis? Do you wanna follow up with on that? Sure, I'll jump in. I think um, it really speaks to the need for researchers not to conduct our research in silos, to think about these research policy practice kinds of partnerships and being intentional about building those. Also, I, I feel lucky to be a part of an applied research um, center where we, we really are thinking about solutions, but also working in tandem to evaluate um, in interventions, like Nate just mentioned, to be able to show effects both short-term as well as long-term. And I think it also speaks to the need for funding to support that kind of work and not only those short-term evaluations, but those long-term evaluations. And so really helping folks be present to see um, over a period of time um, and also to support the, the establishment of databases that allow for this research. All of that is so important. Um, and we see how this research can also translate into positive practice. Uh, I love the sort of rebuild effort that's going on in Philadelphia. We can talk a lot about that, but it is the sort of outgoing mayors, um, I guess they're, they're part of their legacy to rebuild the libraries and the parks and the rec centers in Philadelphia. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars have been invested, has been very community centered, where the community has a say in the type of amenities that um, are provided to communities. 
uh, and the importance of those spaces, not just for what we think about, but for after-school programming, for family reunions, for all of these things that we know sort of benefit both children and families. Um, and I believe that there's a, a video clip that will be there to sort of talk about rebuild to a certain extent. But these are the kinds of large-scale initiatives, policy initiatives that can take place when policymakers and practitioners and advocates as well as researchers are in conversation to say this matters, this type of investment is absolutely necessary to address the disinvestment that has occurred in Black communities and other underserved communities. Um, and, I, and I think sometimes we, we, we question the importance of our voice as researchers, but I think it absolutely is necessary in tandem with, with you know, advocates and practitioners and policymakers. I think that's very, very well said. Um, did you have anything you wanted to add to that question, Natalie? No, please feel free to move on. I think that was really comprehensive and I appreciate um, Mavis bringing in this notion of um, collaboration with, with localized communities because that's really you know, what, what we need to be doing to have tailored and effective approaches. And I think also being uh, like recognizing that evaluation um, for some of the types of programs that we're talking about is really hard and we may not be able to follow um, a randomized trial, but we need to, to think broadly and creatively about how to build the evidence um, about what works. So I'm going to start this next question with you, Natalie, and this question is about mindset shifts. So we've been talking about changes to spaces in the built environment, but can you um, talk to us and share your ideas about what mindset shifts or adjustments um, we really need to consider in the early childhood field and which mindset shifts would be informed by your research? A hard question. Um, so I think that, you know, there, there's been so much change and progress in the field of early childhood uh, over the past several decades. And I think that there is now tremendous appreciation and, and focus on inequities, which is wonderful, and a lot of attention to how we can um, take an anti-racist approach to understanding and addressing inequities in a way that we haven't seen in the past. And that's um, thanks to a lot of people's work across a lot of different disciplines. Uh, I think we see changes in psychology and social work and in public health, but it's really coming from a lot of people who focus on early child development, which is great. But I think we have a long way to go to understand how to situate everything that we understand about an eco-biodevelopmental model of child development within um, our thinking about upstream causes. And so while personal relationships matter, personal relationships are situated in an ecosystem. Um, and we, we want to take a, a structural approach so that we can um, be as effective for as many people as possible. So I think that might be somewhat of a mindset shift. It's not saying that um, relationships don't matter because of course they do. But um, if we can shift our mind to think about what can we do at the higher upstream policy level to allow for the types of relationships we typically study and know are helpful to children to play themselves out. So what can we do upstream to create opportunities in, um, 
for children to have the healthiest context possible um, would be the mind sh mindset shift that, that comes to my mind is continuing to push um, to think about upstream determinants. Yeah. So I love what you just added here, the and you just articulated that this, what we're talking about now, this um, research, it's really about space and place. It's upstream, right? It's it's a really good example of how to think about um, the work that's important in upstream. So um, it's fascinating. I'm just learning so much here with you all today. I, I know that at this point, we have a good amount of time for some um, questions from the community. And we have some here that Tassie and her team have already curated. And I'm gonna start with one and I'll just open the floor and whoever is interested can just respond to it. So one question is, what does the research show us about the different types of impacts that racism has in early childhood education and poverty? What that they have in early childhood development? What similarities do we see and what differences do we see about the different how the different types of racism affect um, young children? And I'm assuming by types of racism, they're talking about um, structural, interpersonal, internalized, et cetera. Well, I'll just jump in and say from our systematic review of the literature on protective community resources, what we found was that even though and we looked at a decade of research, right? So from 2012 until 2022, so research that was published within that sort of last decade. I know we're in 2023, but we sort of ended in 2022. And I think one thing, we identified some gaps, and it's in that report that you uh, referenced earlier, Stephanie, that we need more in-group or group-specific types of studies. Because right now, so much of the research, and I understand researchers who are trying to be published in the top journals of their particular field, um, they actually will rely on a lot of survey data or data that includes, uh, you know, a diverse population of participants so that they can sort of draw and generalize the findings, right? But when we do that, we give up something, right? So no, there's no perfect study. Um, you, you know, there are pros and cons to all kinds of approaches. And that's the reason we need a mix of studies because at this particular point, we don't have a lot of group specific studies. And it's hard for us to sort of talk about what this means, like the impact of racism, for example, the impact of anti-Black racism, on young people, um, how that differs across, you know, region of the country, across socioeconomic status. There are so many in-group, very specific questions that we don't know the answer to because we haven't had that type of research. Um, and then by, by the same token, we can say um, what supports you know, youth versus young children's development. And when we start talking about youth, when we look at sexual and gender identity um, and how that has different effects and, you know, affects the experiences of young people differently, all of these become questions um, that show that even though there is an abundance of research, that 
we have been constrained by measures. A lot of it, we're using, you know, um, quantitative survey designs that can limit the kinds of questions that we can ask um, and the measures that we've had in the past. I mean, just thinking about the different types of racism, that's a fairly current conversation, right? And, and so people are just beginning. So I wish that we could say more, but I think one thing that we can say is in this literature, there are large gaps. And so we need to um, embrace the importance of those very group-specific questions um, and encourage researchers to go ahead and do it. <laughs> you know, I don't think that there's been the same level of permission to do those kinds of studies in the past but we know their importance and we need to give each other and ourselves and um, you know, the various researchers who are coming through the pipeline permission to conduct those kinds of studies. Yeah, so I, I echo and support everything you're saying and just this idea of how we need to expand and diversify our research, not just in terms of measures, in terms of samples, in terms of um, qualitative versus quantitative. I think that that is a really um, good, thoughtful, and big agenda for how we move um, forward in, or, in a way that can answer these questions. Um, so it's great. I'm going to ask this question from an audience member, which I think is really interesting, is which one point about racism's impact on early child development um, do you do you wish that we as researchers or the public policymakers practitioners that we understood more? So let's think about one point is what the person. That's the challenge. For me, the the one point that comes to my mind is I think that there is could be often. Um, a misconception that the consequences of experience, well, first of all, I think people hear the word racism and very often the default thought is interpersonal experiences of racism and not thinking across different levels. So number one, but the, I think that there's a con conventional thought that the damage would be psychological or emotional um, without thinking about the broader span of consequences that there are implications of the you know, range of types of racist experiences that people have interpersonally and within the their day-to-day -day, um, experiences in systems and structural environments that affect cognitive development and social development and health, physical health is impacted, as Nate had talked about, sleep, all the, the whole range of uh, developmental outcomes that we study um, are beginning to be studied in relation to a variety of forms of racism. And uh, we shouldn't underestimate the, the pervasive impacts um, that it can have. That's, that is a hard question because we know how pervasive the effects have been, right? So I, I would cheat and I would, you know, try to at least two, two come to mind, top of mind. And one is the relationship between um, racism and economic violence. Or uh, when I talk about economic violence, again, drawing from the domestic violence definitions of obstructions to economic mobility and opportunity, because in that way, we see the interface between racism and poverty, you know, and, and economic disinvestment in communities and all that means for children's well-being, their health, their building environment. So that's that's one thing. 
But I think also importantly, how racism and its pervasiveness in American society through media, through representations and education, the effect that that has had on one's identity development, on young children's identity development, um, and what we see that in terms of youth and, and, and what we're seeing in terms of research where, you know, young black, um, young adults, black youth feel less tied to a black identity than previous generations. And what, what does that mean for young black children as they develop in a, in a society that is still um, characterized by anti-black racism when young black children do not have a sort of positive racial identity? Um, and how do they then begin to understand the system that they're in? And how do they learn to navigate that system? So the effects of racism, not only on like racial identity for young children and their whole identity, their personhood identity, but also its association with economic deprivation and violence in the United States. So those would be two things. Yeah, so I'm also going to cheat in answering this question because I think that the question itself really dovetails nicely with both um, Dr. Slope and Dr. Sanders' con uh, answers to, you know, what is the mindset shift we're gonna, we need to have in this sort of field? And especially for those of us in neuroscience, I think it's really important to recognize that we really haven't done that much in terms of trying to understand this sort of intersection of racialization socioeconomic deprivation and violence that children are exposed to. We spent a lot of time thinking about how, you know, environmental um, deprivation or exposure to different threats to the environment might affect children in general. We've done two decades of work looking at all of this, but in terms of acknowledging or accepting that the experiences that say black or white children might have are different as a result of this sort of socio-historical or cultural pressures that's been placed on the environments that people now grow up in, there's been very limited to do with that. Um, and also going back to Dr. Sarah's point, and it's something that you know our work is trying to move to, we haven't done a good job of it. We focused a lot on group differences and potential contributors to that, but we haven't explored or begun to scratch the surface of what's happening within groups what might be different for individuals who are still exposed to these high levels of racism, but come from less socioeconomically disadvantaged areas? What's the sort of impact on the brain? And again, we know, again, it's been almost 100 years, maybe more, figuring out these regions are really important for emotion, really important for different psychiatric disorders. And if we really want to have a full understanding of what the consequences of stress are, what the consequences of racism are, and what the sort of brain basis for disorders are so we can make these generalizable, equitable treatments for the entire citizenry of the United States, we really need to figure out what's happening there, especially in childhood, and how this sort of intersection between racialization and these threat and deprivation, other aspects of thinking about childhood development are intersecting um, to achieve those goals. So I have a quick follow-up question for um, Mavis. Were you, and when you were talking, did you say that children nowadays have a less of attachment to their Black identity than in prior 
um, years, decades. Can you talk yes, more about I that? I have to send you the poll. Um, and so I don't want to share the source, but I'm almost sure what the source is. But once I share it, it's documented, you know, and so I will send that link. But yes, they were just looking at um, across generations um, in terms of identification with one sort of racial identity. And we know that young people, I think younger than 30, have a different level attach of attachment than previous generations. Mm. And I will make sure that I send that study so that it can be um, added as a resource for participants moving forward. Yeah, that's really interesting and compelling. I see a lot of little um, shocked emojis floating up, you know, with that. So yes, please make sure that we all get that. Um, I have another question that I'm going to go to here. Um, okay. And I, again, I'll throw this out to anyone. How do you think we can ensure that future research contributes to this dismantling of racial inequalities and of building those conditions for success. How do you think future research, what do you think future research needs to do? And for everyone that's a field, not just you all's research. Uh, I would say that Nate has sort of, you know, sort of laid it out. Nat, uh, Natalie has also uh, laid it out in terms of, you know, group specific studies in terms of um, new questions and the development of new measures, the, the actual full use of the existing measures that are out there around economic opportunity um, and, and the opportunity index scale um, that Natalie was talking about, um, using a variety of approaches, uh, engaging with the community to see about community questions, what is important in those communities, we talked about research policy practice partnerships and research. So I think all of those, you know, those are at least four areas in terms of the approach, who, who has a say in the types of questions um, that we're asking and answering, um, you know, what, is, what type of supports and funding are available for us to do these group specific kinds of studies um, and vehicles for publication. And then for those who are in higher ed and academia, um, whether or not our institutions of higher education are also valuing these and our promotion and tenure committees are also valuing them. And so that as people do this type of research, they're not fearful that they won't be able to advance in their you know, chosen field in academia. So it, it really, um, means that we have to start bringing all of these various parties um, into the conversation because we know this research is important, but there are so many institutions and systems that are in place that may limit um, people's opportunity to engage with this. What I really love about you all as panelists is that you are all coming from different perspectives, right? So it's sort of really interdisciplinary. And I think that's a strength. When I talked about the ECRQ special issue, 
also it's interdisciplinary. And I'm wondering when we think about research for the future, I'm wondering if there could be um, some way in which instead of approaching these questions as individual scientists, can we approach things as a collaborative, right? So that we can go deeper. And I just think that that is such a good proactive um, way to allow the science to advance. And I'm hoping that people can hear it funders, federal agencies, I'm hoping that they can hear this as well and really see the power of what we can learn when we have an interdisciplinary um, group working on issues. We have about five minutes. I'm going to give you all each some time to do a takeaway message. And so the takeaway message is please share um, a positive outcome or development um, in your work related to communities, policies, and research that we can take with us. So an idea that we can leave with us that will help us um, sort of feel em um, empowered to learn and grow and continue this work. So let's, what's a positive you wanna leave with us? Well, one positive that I have is that it seems to be a convergence that I see um, around, you know, advocacy groups, policy groups, um, researchers that understand the importance of disentangling the effects or highlighting the effects of systemic, the way systems and organizations affect outcomes and not just reporting outcomes but really trying to help people understand the context in which those outcomes are produced. You know, um, and so that's moving us forward in the conversation. So we're not reporting just, oh, there's a gap in mm -hmm. academic achievement between you know, black children and youth and white children and youth. We're talking about the institutional effects of of underfunding education and relying on tax, you know, property, property tax base or whatever, and the long-term effects of economic inequity, of educational and economic inequities to lead to these outcomes. Mm -hmm. So the importance of contextualizing these findings so that we take our research gains for the systems that produce them rather than the individuals. I think is really important. And, and, and it seems as though um, I feel as though there's much more support for that and, and almost an expectation of that moving forward. So if we can hold on to that and push that, then I think that that helps us to, to change and create those kinds of environments that all children deserve and need to thrive. So I love that. What about Natalie and Nate? What, are you, what is your takeaway, your positive takeaway you want to leave us with? Well, I feel very encouraged um, about the attention that we see across the different disciplines thinking about early childhood to context. I think there has been this shift uh, that we've all observed over the past decade that um, has made it um, almost an expectation to be thinking about across um, topics. And 
I think that um, our data sources are, are catching up and we have more and more opportunities. Um, let's say if we're researchers who, who rely on um, large federally funded cohort studies, for example, they are collecting more information that allows us to study both um, risk factors, but also protective factors, which is an incredibly important future direction as well. And so I think that um, we have increasing opportunities to take a very comprehensive look at social environments that shape child development, both the um, positive and the negative, and also to take um, a multi-level perspective, which we know is going to be really important for figuring out upstream strategies for intervention. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. What about you, Nate? Yeah, I think, you know, both of these are great. And I wish I could, you know, just answer that, but I'll try to come up with something unique very quickly. You know, I think for me, I'm not unaware of the sort of storied history that neuroscience has played um, and the way in which people will use biology to justify um, a lot of, let's say, racist behavior and the way that sort of, you know, structuralized into the institutions that we have. And it's been very, very encouraging to see more people pay attention to this and, you know, really get the data to show that you know, it's not this sort of ingrained brain thing. It's the systems that we've developed, it's the structures that are in place that are contributing to altered development and playing a role downstream. I think, you know, to sort of increase recognition and having the data to really emphasize this has just been really positive for me. Yeah. I tell you, I am so filled up with knowledge and encouraged as a scientist by this conversation with you all. I really feel as though we need more conversations like this. We just scratched the surface here. And I, it's been so lovely meeting you all. And um, I wanna say that I hope we can continue this conversation in meaningful ways. And I want to thank you for being part of this um, panel and bringing your knowledge here in this space. And I thank you on behalf of Harvard and the Center on the Developing Child. I thank you on behalf of Boston University and this um, and SEED. And I look forward to um, continuing these conversations with you all. The Brain Architects is a product of the Center on the Developing Child at Harvard University. You can find us at developingchild.harvard.edu, where we will post any resources that were discussed in this episode. The next webinar in our Place Matters webinar series is on March 5th at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Stay tuned to our social channels for more details. You can find us on Twitter at Harvard Center, Facebook at Center Developing Child, and Instagram at Developing Child Harvard. Our music is Brain Power by Mila Collective.